Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and we are having conversations here where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. And it is good to have you with us today. We've got another conversation with a seminary, and we are having a conversation, like all kinds of things come up in it. We talk about the way that money is used in Christian institutions to sort of control outcomes. We talk about new ways of reimagining how how churches, pastors, people that are interested in a higher education in the church space, like what it looks like to reimagine that, to rub shoulders with folks who come out of different experiences from you who are in different denominations and belong in different spaces than what you have belonged in and what that sort of does to you and for you. We talk about sort of like what does it look like to have these uh, institutions that have been around for a while that are being reimagined and seeing new life coming from them in new and different ways. So we spend some time talking about that. Before we get into this interview where we'll be talking to Candace Brock and Zach Lambert, who are both engaged with Fletcher Seminary. Before we get into that, I want to remind you all of the Post-Evangelical Collective that is coming up October 11th and 12th in Denver, Colorado. We'd love to have you there. We've got a great group of folks who are coming. These are people who are pastors and artists and other kinds of church leaders uh, who feel like they uh, don't belong anywhere anymore and are beginning to find belonging with this group of folks. So there's more information on my website, mikegoldsworthy.com. Would love to have you there if you find yourself in church leadership and don't really know, like, where do I fit in the larger church landscape anymore? This this may be a place where you'll find some resonance. And then secondly, I want to remind you that our good friends at Logos, the Bible software that we are partnering with them to help provide discounts on this fantastic Bible software that I use and love. We'll probably at some point do a podcast a little bit more on it, maybe even a little bit of a uh, tutorial we've talked about doing, some sort of way of just helping you to see how to utilize it more. But it is a program that I have used for years and love. And so at my website at mikegoldsworthy.com, you can find more information about that. You can find a link to discounts. And when you buy it that way, both you're getting both a discount and you're helping to support me and the work that I'm doing. So a little, a little uh, double dip there, which I appreciate. So having said all of that, we are going to go ahead and turn it over to our interview for today with Candice and Zach. Well, friends, welcome back. We are getting to hang out today with uh, Dr. Candice Brock and with Zach Lambert, who are here to talk about all kinds of different things that are happening in the sort of like larger church landscape. We're going to spend some time talking about seminary and some of the shifting things that are happening there. We're going to talk about like what's happening with institutions within the Christian space and get to hear some of your guys' stories. So um, I appreciate the two of you joining me today. Thanks for making some time. Thank you. Absolutely. Glad to be here, man. Um, So we're getting to hang out because of Fletcher Seminary. 
and I want to hear about Fletcher in just a minute. But like Zach, you and I have known each other now for um, maybe like a year and a half or something. We've been hanging out a bit and I love what's going on at your church and I've wanted to find a way to have you on. So this will be fun to even find some ways to tell a little bit of the story of your church. Um, but Candace, uh, you are on staff with Fletcher and I've been getting to know Fletcher a bit recently and just so impressed with you all what you're doing. What's um, what's some of your background? How did you end up at Fletcher Seminary? Yes. Yeah, so I background wise, my husband and I, we are church planners in San Antonio. We're going on four years old, the message church. And so in addition to pastoring, I'm also a social worker. And so have that combination. And so how Fletcher became a part of my journey, my ministry journey, was that really good friend of ours, Dr. Susan Douglas, and also another board member, Kirsten Hancock, who I didn't share a little uh, beforehand. They said, hey, we have this really great work that's taking place in San Antonio. And if you would be open to it, we'd love to have you just, you and you and your husband come on board and just see where you all could fit in. And one of the things I've always wanted to do was be part of higher education. I love education. I love everything about um, and you know, really pushing people to be the best version of themselves. And so when I was afforded this opportunity, I said, yes, it, it's like doing social work. But in another, uh, I say it's a different type of social work. So <laughs> I like that social work and hang in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the message church, did you get permission from Eugene Peterson to call it that? Are there oh. copyright infringements? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> we, we look, there's no message church in Texas. There's some, oh, oh good. but yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, you're good. Uh, did, uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit bef uh, before we jump over to Zach and hear a little bit about his church. Do you mind sharing a little bit about the message church? Oh, yes, yes. So the message church came out of a time, my husband and I, um, we had just recently left an established church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when we came back to Texas, we knew that God was calling us um, to a new work. We were like, God, we don't think we can do the established church anymore. What are you having us to do? And it just seemed like every week someone was asking us, so, hey, where's your new church? And we were like, what are you talking about? We don't have a church. We're still <laughs> going to our, our our other church. And so needless to say, after a year of fasting and praying, we said, God, we're trusting that you're calling us to do this work. And so the message church was birthed in April uh, 2018 on Christmas, excuse me, not Christmas, Easter Sunday. And what was so awesome about it, uh, my husband and I, we have various uh, backgrounds. So he actually did his work. He did his MDiv in Baylor, but got his D-man at the Oblate School of Theology, which is a Catholic seminary in San Antonio. I don't have an MDiv, but I did my social work degree at Norfolk State and HBCU, then did my seminary work, my D-man at United Theological Seminary, which is a Methodist. So a Methodist seminary. So you have all these different experiences that we bring to the table. And we said, as a church, we want to be able to do church the way that we feel God is calling us to do. And so if you were to come and visit us, you'd see a little liturgical where we have uh, acolytes. You'll see, a, you'll hear us reading hymns or you'll maybe see us uh, being Pentecostal. So there's really just this feel of authenticity and rear and reflection of the theological uh, thread that's really woven throughout both of our stories. And so we have a great group of um, uh, parishioners. We have people that are retired military, active duty military. We have community people, community members. And so it's just very diverse in the experience and the wealth of just community that comes to the message church. So that's really that's our story. That's super fascinating. Yeah. I, um, I really want to come visit now. I'm yes, super curious please. about what you all are doing. <laughs> That'd be super fun. Um, well, Zach, uh, 
Uh, folks on here haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, but I love so many things about you. Like I love um, the way that you lead, your thoughtfulness, the kinds of people that you have been connecting. And um, you are so fun to follow on Twitter because you stir <laughs> things up. And um, and I just love it. It gives me it gives me great joy. And also a little heartache for you at times Reason that I'm like, oh, how does how does he read through all these? But without all that, like <laughs> give give folks like the two minute kind of like here's who you are, how you've gotten kind of to where you're at. Yeah. Um, yeah. Twitter can be an exhausting place. I feel like it's it's both uh, like Frederick Buechner said, right? Terrible and beautiful things happen there um, on the mm. on the Twitter Uh yeah, so my background is I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, uh, where I still am today. I took a bit of a detour in undergrad and grad school, but I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, uh, Southern Baptist Megachurch, really during the time of the conservative resurgence that was happening, um, or uh, sometimes called the fundamentalist takeover that happened in the 80s and 90s and culminated in 2000. And so it was a lot of, of culture warring and intensity and hellfire brimstone preaching and um to be candid, I was just never into it, even from day one. It was just, uh, I found it to be confusing and disturbing. And I found this picture of God that I was being given to um, really not be attractive in, in any way. And and I know they called it the good news, uh, but none of it really sounded like good news to me, um, which was being presented. And so uh, I kind of, you know, went the other direction and uh, began to look for kind of life and belonging and inclusion and all these other places. Um, but at, at 17 years old, um, I ended up through a, a bunch of different things that had happened an, an overdose and, um, some good friends stepping into my life. Um, I, I became a Christian by literally reading the gospel accounts about Jesus. And I realized I knew a ton about the beginning and the end. I knew a ton about Easter and Christmas, but I knew nothing about the actual life of Jesus and who he was and how he acted and the way he treated people. And I was constantly in trouble in church growing up, you know, kicked out a few different times um, for youth groups and Sunday school classes for asking questions or doubting or things like that. But in the gospels, I found this version of Jesus. I met this, this person who um, welcomed those questions, who um, met people where they were, who was willing to get in trouble with religious leaders to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes, who I always identified with in those stories and completely fell in love with Jesus and, and wanted to, to follow him kind of wherever he led me. And so um, that was uh, into college and then into seminary. Um, my wife and I got married at, at 21 and then at 26, I uh, was working at some churches in the Dallas area and decided that we were going to move back to Austin to start this church. Um, it's called Restore Austin. And we launched in February of 2016. And I gave that background because um, the church is really for people who have um, difficult church experiences who have traumatic church backgrounds, um, church wounding, um, and whether it's uh, specifically a denominational thing or not, just people who've had tough experiences um, with with church or Christians in general. Um, and that's really the idea of where the name came from, of, of restoring people's faith in Jesus and the church um, and introducing them to this, this person of Jesus um, who, uh, you know, I still just can't get over how incredible uh, he is and continues to be in my life and in the lives of the people in our church. Um, and so it's a, it's a really diverse crew, um, people from all over, uh, and, uh, different ages, races, genders, and socioeconomic statuses and sexual orientations and backgrounds and belief systems. 
um, but really united around the person and work of Christ um, and doing really good, deep uh, work in our city. Um, we do a lot of volunteering, partner with about 11 different nonprofit organizations in our city to serve with uh, on a monthly basis um, all over the place. And so, yeah, it's become this really beautiful community. Um, I don't think it's anything like what I thought it was going to be. I'm sure Candace can speak to that. You, you know, it's never <laughs> like what you think it's going to be. Um, but in, in our case. How's it, how's it different? Like, what did you imagine? Well, that's a good question. I, I think I was, I was coming out of uh, white evangelicalism, even uh, through seminary in my, my time in Dallas. And so I think I had a, a picture of, um, you know, and I was influenced by some church planting folks that were very uh, church growth centric. Um, and, uh, and so I think in my mind, it was going to just, you know, explode and it was going to be um, this thing that was uncontainable and, uh, you know, just amazing. Um, and it has been uh, different than that. Right. Um, and it's essentially been uh, a steady growth of, um, I say we, we get like, uh, you know, one or two new members a month, every month for the last six and a half years. And, uh, so that's, it's grown in beautiful ways, but it, it's just, I do a lot more like social work and direct care than I ever thought I would. I spend a little mm -hmm. bit less time strategic planning than I thought than I, I learned in the mega church world. Um, and I do, uh, yeah, I kind of wish I had a social work background like Candace so that I could, <laughs> I've had to learn a lot on the go, but we have a very socioeconomically diverse, um, group. Uh, we're in an urban center of Austin. And so, um, you know, some of our areas are kind of mid gentrification. And so it's very socioeconomically diverse, um, and, uh, having small groups with, with millionaires and people who currently live in shelters in the same group is, uh, beautiful and challenging. Um, and so I think I didn't know it was going to be like that for sure. You know, having to getting to do a lot of direct care, social work stuff, it, uh, but it's become mm. my favorite part of pastoring. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about your church and Candace, I'd want to ask you about your church as well, but I don't want to, I don't want to derail too much because one of the things that we wanted to talk about that I think would be helpful for folks, because I think that there's a lot of people who would resonate with these kinds of experiences and stories is, um, both Zach, I know your church and your experience and Candace, I know at least for Fletcher Seminary, that there is an experience that you all have had of belonging in certain communities where um, even, I don't know if you would, if you would read it this way in the same way, but I, I like to tell people that I'm like, Hey, 15 years ago, like I would have been the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm saying would have fit within the wide tent of evangelicalism. <laughs> Some of it might've been at like the edges of the tent, but I would have fit in the tent and then there's been these shifts that have happened that where the tent has moved and you kind of don't, be, you, you can't belong anymore. And so the folks that I'm connecting with are either getting kicked out of spaces they belonged in or opting out of spaces they don't, they no longer fit in and are like, I don't know where I fit anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways that's institutionally happened for you both. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of the story of like what that has looked like of having belonged in a place and then uh, that your institution, your organization belonged with a group, with a group of others, and then it no longer fit there anymore and had to like emerge with a new kind of identity. Does that, does that framing make sense? Oh, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Candice, you want to go first? Yeah. So I would say that my sense of belonging kind of mirrors Fletcher's from the standpoint of just being a woman in ministry. I will say that. Um, And I say that because beforehand, you know, it was it was safe when Candace was Frederick's wife. It was safe, you know, but once I formally said God is calling me to preach and to pastor, there were a lot of institutions that we even engaged um, you know, just for that that supportive church planners that took their hands off of us and said, you know, we like Frederick. But yeah. Candace, this is no, no, no. And I think about the Fletcher story, how it kind of mirrors how, you know, all things were well. Um, you know, at the school, you know, there it um where it was, well Fletcher was beforehand, but where at Loxton, it was all fun, you know, it was good. But then once Loxton began to have some of those challenges, you know, the university said, no, we're taking our hands off because y'all are, you know, because of the finances, we need to go somewhere else. And so seeing that Loxton was birthed, excuse me, the seeing that Fletcher was birthed out of, you know, a group of their, you know, the community that said, hey, we want to see the work of, of the kingdom to go forward. And we're not going to be accepted in these spaces. We're not going to be the norm. The fact that they have a black woman as part of the associate vice presidents <laughs> in San Antonio, yeah. that's that's huge from the standpoint of San Antonio is not a kind place mm-hmm. to women in ministry. Let me just say. Mm-hmm. And then you add that I'm a black woman in ministry. And it is it is so tough. And I've shared this very openly. I'll say it for everybody to hear. I realize that there are doors that may not be opened because of what I look like. And mm-hmm. it's sad because they're going to miss out on the blessing that Fletcher can be, right, to the world above. But because of what I look like, I know there are certain institutions, there are certain people, there are certain entities that are like, nope, we liked you before we saw you. And so those are some spaces that I have to navigate and be okay with saying, you know, I opt out of, mm-hmm. even though I'm Baptist by roots, I realize that, man, it's it's beyond me being a Baptist. It's beyond me being ascribing to this, this, and this, but it's like, I'm ascribing to people having genuine relationships with God and being mm-hmm. part of Fletcher is really part, you know, being saying, hey, we have a seat at the table for you. Come mm-hmm. and let's dine together. That's so good. And is like the 30,000 foot level of the story of kind of the um, the origin story of Fletcher that it was, you alluded to this a little bit, it was a previous seminary. And that previous seminary existed within a system where um, finances began to be utilized and pulled because they didn't like the direction mm-hmm. the seminary was going by um, by a larger, more inclusive embrace. Is that a is that a fair, like high level sort of thing? Oh yes, for sure. Yeah, for I sure. think so. Mm-hmm. I, I think you you said well too earlier, Mike, about. Um, I don't even think it was necessarily the seminary, previous seminary that shifted. I think it was the institution around it that began to shift, mm. right? And so, mm. like you were saying, the things you were, you're talking about now would have been inside of evangelicalism 15 years ago. Um, for the vast majority of the previous seminary Logsdon's life, it was inside of these systems mm. and existed uh, cohesively with them. Um, and But as those larger institutions began to shift and narrow, um, this seminary found itself on the outside of that. And when that happened, um, I, it's, it's pretty amazing because I've watched this happen a number of times. I know we all have, we we've seen whether it's individuals or churches or institutions start to have, um, 
you know, kind of the, the walls close in around them a little bit and you have to make some decisions. You have to decide, am I going to really lean into who God is calling me to be? Or am I going to try to conform and stay within this system that I've been in for a long time? And what makes me so proud of Fletcher is that when all of that stuff started closing in and finances were used in the way you just said, Mike, and eventually it was closed down instead of during that whole time, they could have shifted, um, right. And, and become more palatable to the institution that they were around, but they didn't, they chose to remain true to who they were. And then I think kind of out of the ashes of that, Fletcher was born, um, as an actual, truly ecumenical seminary. Um, that has incredible diversity already, not just from denominational backgrounds, but, but gender and, uh, race and, and everything else. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those situations where I know there was a lot of breathing, um, when law has been closed, but as Fletcher has been born and is being born now, um, there's so much more joy because now I think it's, it's almost the fullness of what a lot of those logs and folks dreamed maybe it could be someday. Um, and now it gets to live into its full identity as um, this beautiful, diverse picture of the kingdom of God. Hmm. I'd be curious on your all's read on what is it that began to shift for institutions to have to make choices like that? Um, so I was thinking I was just uh, I'm in this Facebook group with like people who are graduates of my undergrad uh, Bible college that I went to like stretching back to like they graduated in the 60s and 70s all the way up until present day. And somebody was posting the other day, they posted about like, can you believe all the great speakers that we had come to chapel? And they started naming folks. And I was like, I can't believe we had all those folks in our chapel, the wide diversity of kinds of things. And that there was this time where it was like, they're all pursuing Jesus. Yes. And like, that's the thing that we have in common and we trust their pursuit of Jesus and we've got room for theological difference within that. Right. And it feels like there has been a, it not just feels like we're observing shifts that are taking place where that's no longer the criteria and there is certain kinds of doctrinal purity and things like that, that are taking what was room for a wide approach to become a very narrow approach that's then uh, forcing different organizations to have to decide like what to do. Anyways, what what's your read on like why that sort of shrinking of focus and um, that that's forcing people to either conform or be pushed out? I think part of it is fear in all honesty, yeah. right? Like you're so used to doing something a certain way. And then when you meet, you meet someone who doesn't look like you or you are introduced to something that's not as familiar to you, nine times out of 10, if you're not willing to embrace and ask the questions, right, then it's like, okay, this is wrong. This is bad. Rather than asking questions that can inform your judgment. So I get the the idea that a lot of it has to do with fear, uh, fear of losing resources, fear of losing stakeholders, fear of losing um, a lot. And it's like, do I really want to lose that for this? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, and I totally agree with Candace. I think there's also just a larger polarization happening, you know, in culture way beyond, uh, Christian world. Um, Ezra Klein wrote a great book a couple of years ago called why we're polarized. Uh, he's the founder of Vox and, um, former MSNBC guy. And, and he just, he wrote about and, and referenced all these studies that showed the continued polarization, um, politically, um, religiously, even geographically that has taken place in the United States over the last couple of decades. And, um, 
the truth is that for the vast majority of us, whether it's with religion or faith or just in everyday life, we don't spend a lot of time with people who think differently, look differently, vote differently. Um, and, and again, a lot of that's geography. Um, you have so many more, uh, spaces where, um, <laughs> the, you, you have a lot of political, um, or partisan unity because of where you actually live. Um, and I, and I think we probably all know people who have literally moved because they did not want to live in a space where it was so, they felt so isolated politically. Um, and I think that happens uh, religiously as well. So as we saw a culture, um, and partisan politics continue to polarize, I think, uh, that church, um, unfortunately followed suit a little bit on that. And those hmm. doctoral tests and, and purity tests, um, became much more, uh, prevalent. And, and I think that we, if you live by litmus tests, I think you're going to die by litmus tests. And I think we're seeing a lot of that happening in a larger institutional church world right now, where there's so much breakage, a um, trauma and pain, uh, because, uh, you have to have such a narrow understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in order to be a part of some of these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Zach, I heard you use a phrase I wrote it down in a conversation that we had had, um, uh, not in this conversation, another time. You said that evangelical conservatives use money to control outcomes. Um, and I was thinking of like, I mean, we talk about it seminary-wise and Christian college-wise. Like I was thinking of the story of um, at Wheaton College a few years ago. I can't remember the professor's name now, who um, uh, got uh, got attacked because she had said, that that God is one, and we're talking about one God. Do you remember, do you remember that yeah. conversation I'm talking yeah. about? No, I'm talking about like broadly, um, and that like, and it was fine statements within the institution until people started uh, holding money over the head of the institution, and then they start making theological judgments based off of money being pulled or being given and all of that, right? I'm kind of curious what your experience has been with stuff like that. Have you had experience of money being used to try to control the way that your church operates, the way that you do ministry, uh, what that all looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I, I do think we see it broadly. I, I, I grew up in it candidly, um, you know, in the, in kind of a moral majority culture where, um, there was so much boycotting constantly. Right. And there was all always we we're on my family. We were, my parents listened to Dr. Dobson, uh, free religiously. So when he said to boycott, we said, how high, um, and you know, it was Disney, it was Abercrombie, it was, you know, anybody and everybody. Right. And, uh, yeah. and so I think that that culture has just gotten worse and worse. Um, and so, yeah, for, for me, it, it started really early. Like we, we moved down here to start the process of planting and uh, we actually hadn't even launched yet. We were raising some money. Um, both from individuals and kind of institutional places. And, and one guy that we'd raised some money from was a friend back in Dallas, uh, more of an acquaintance. Um, and we had already moved to Austin, but hadn't actually started the church yet. And I remember that I had posted something on my just personal social media um, in support uh, of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. And um, I, in a way that I thought was like fairly, um, you know, high level, just like, hey, I think we should uh, support somebody who's trying to do this, uh, the right way. If you remember, he'd like talked to, I think it was Nate Boyer, that the military guy and said like, how do I do, <laughs> how do I, uh, you know, protest in a respectful way. Um, and, and he, and I just thought it was, you know, really well done. Right. And, and he, this guy, this, this donor in Dallas saw the post called me and said, 
Uh, and he was like a, a monthly supporter. He said, take it down or I'm going to stop my monthly support. Um, and you know, it's, it's those, those early choice moments where you're like, okay, um, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to leave it up. And, um, I hope that maybe we could talk about why I think this, or maybe why you think this or whatever, but I don't think this is a really healthy way to interact with each other. Uh, why don't we try to have a dialogue? I'm even happy. I'll be in Dallas soon. Let's have coffee, whatever, whatever. And, um, he said, I don't need to talk. And I mean, I got the notification like a minute later, <laughs> the donation had been stopped. Um, and so it's small things like that. And then it's, it's also large things. I, I shared the story before about the sister church we planted on campus at, at UT Austin. And we went through the process for about, um, two years of raising external funding to get that off the ground. Um, it was going to be a very student centric church. So we needed, we needed so, some significant external funding, not just from us, but from surrounding groups. And, um, uh, obviously Candace knows better than anyone, but the, we, we went through an interview process and hired a black woman to be the lead pastor of that church. And the day we hired her, we heard from three different organizations that lost a total of $60,000 in support, um, that day. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it just, it, it's, it's so, so prevalent. Uh, I could tell a million stories of not just me, but other friends who've been through similar things. People don't believe me when I tell them that these things happen. <laughs> yeah. Like they genuinely don't. They're like, no, nah, that like, that sounds made up yeah. or like, that's like, it's not really as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. No. No. I mean, yeah. Has that been your experience, Candace? Oh, yes. Um, we actually experienced it more so early on in our church planning experience. Um, I remember, again, they were, Frederick was safe, Candace not so much. And I remember mm -hmm. we went to this larger, this large denominational body, and we said, this is for exploring church planning, which you all, you know, could we engage in the process? And as soon as we started, we had our first phone call with them, and they said, hey, we did our research on y'all. And we noticed that Candace, you have videos of Candace preaching and teaching. And while we support you all, we don't support what she's doing. Can you remove those videos from your website? Mm. And Frederick just as, you know, graciously said, thank you for your time, but that won't ha be happening. Mm. And then fast forward, um, another large denominational body, we had talked to them. They were super excited about us coming on board, uh, unbeknownst to us. And I should know this. I should know better, but I don't. Uh, they were going out and looking at all of our stuff online. And they noticed that we didn't name drop them as often as they had liked. Wow. And they basically told us, wow. you know, hey, we, we love what you're doing. We see that y'all are doing well, but we don't see our name or logo on your items or on your website. And we're like, we know, like we, we're not oblivious to this. And they're like, well, if you want to continue to receive our monthly donations, then you all need to at least say our name once or twice, maybe drop, you know, something. And so <laughs> we were just floored by the fact that because if we're not, we're not doing what you're asking us to do, you're going to pull funding. Uh, we also had another one really quick. Um, our CFO at the time was a, in a same-sex relationship. And we announced, we put in our MailChimp, we're so excited to welcome our CFO. And as soon as that email went out, I mean, between mm. Frederick's phone and our emails, it was, so are y'all saying you're da 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 And we're like, we're just introducing our CFO <laughs> to the world. We didn't, like, we're not marching on Washington. Like, chill out, y'all. Like, calm down. <laughs> and so it was, I mean, it was people that even said it. Same thing, like, oh, if y'all don't pull this down, y'all yeah. are going to lose money. And we said, if we lose funding, it is what it is. We didn't need their dollars anyway. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah.
It, mm. it is real. <laughs> I was thinking of a time we could probably all we could probably have a sorrow story podcast of <laughs> us all sharing these stories. I was thinking of a time um, at the church that I was leading where we were going to take an offering for refugees. And we had historically really been involved in refugee work. The church is 70 years old, and we had been involved in resettling refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge. And like it had been a part of our church's story. So we had had more refugees moving in from the Middle East. So we were doing a big uh, engagement with that work. And I remember somebody coming to me and saying, like, I'll only give money to this if you can guarantee there won't be any Syrian refugees that are part of it. <laughs> And it was somebody who was super engaged and committed in our church. And like, I, I don't know, I just remember this thing of like, uh, of like trying to figure out what do I do with that? Where it's like, I, I mean, it's the whole, like, I'm controlling the way that you live this out. You can only live it out in the way that my mm -hmm. lens can make sense of. And that's, and the way that I'm going to force you into that, I'm not even going to dialogue with you about it. I'm not going to try and understand your point. I'm just going to simply wave my checkbook in front of you as a way of trying to make you move in the way that I want you to move. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's indicative in my, this is a whole betrayal. We don't need to go down, but uh, the fact that that is so prevalent, I think shows us just how much like this kind of Western American capitalism stuff has infected the church of like, we consider money like the highest form of endorsement. And so um, like, that's like the biggest thing we can do. We can think of is to pull our funding, right? Not like have a conversation and not like it, it just goes immediately to that. And I, the first time um, I'm, I'm 33. So I, I didn't hear, I didn't see all of this um, as much growing up. Like I said, some of the boycotts and stuff that we experienced. Uh, was my first taste. But as an adult, the first time I remember just being floored by this was the World Vision stuff um, in 2014, right? When when World Vision went through this whole discernment process, announced that they were going to uh, essentially just um, abide by the, the United States government's um, stuff around same-sex marriage and um, would allow people in same-sex marriages to be on their staff. And um, they announced it and like thousands and thousands of people pulled their child sponsorships. Right. So like these kids all over the world um, who were being supported, uh, like literally are getting food taken out of their mouths. Right. Um, in order to make a point about gay marriage uh, and World Vision had, they were, had to reverse it two days later. I mean, the, the, the outcry was so intense and the money was so stopped up that, that two days later they had to go back. And, and I remember the announcement, um, I guess it was Rich Stearns or whoever at the time you know, came out and essentially said, like, it's not that we don't believe in the decision we made. It's that we have thousands and thousands of uh, vulnerable children all over the world who can't eat because of this. And so we're going to go back and make this other decision. And I, I think that that shows kind of the, the links to which a lot of folks in evangelicalism will go, even taking money from the most vulnerable people in the world um, in order to make a, a, a point. Yeah. Well, um, so one of the things I'm experiencing is people run into something like that. And I think I'm seeing generally like three responses that people take with it. One is that they conform to the system, right? That it's like, there's good that I want to do. Yeah. In order to do that good, there, are th there's, I need to fit within this box. And so I'm going to fit within that box and I'm going to do the good that I want to do. And you can um, figure out ways to feel good about that, right? So... I'll see some folks that are doing that. Uh, 
and some of them that are doing really good work within those systems, and then some of them that are have become in some ways enculturated by the system because what you're around you end up mm -hmm. adopting and adapting to, right? So I see that. I see then some folks that just opt out of the whole thing, that they're like, everything is corrupt and just like F it all. Yeah. And it's kind of some of what we see happening in the, like, and I totally understand it, the evangelical movement of like, burn the whole thing mm -hmm. down because the whole thing's corrupt. I don't want anything to do with it. And then the third thing that I'm seeing happen is people that are trying to birth something new, that are trying to um, critique by creating, um, as it said, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think like that's the space that we're finding ourselves in is all trying to say like, okay, well, we, we're not trying to fit within the system in the way that we need to. We're also not trying to just say burn all down, but we think that there's something, uh, there's a more beautiful way forward. And so we're going to create churches and seminaries and other kinds of organizations and institutions that help to chart a new way forward. Um, so having said that i love like the thing that brought us all together was um is the new thing that fletcher's trying to create so i would love to hear a little bit about that what's the what's sort of the heartbeat behind that what's what's that new thing there yeah so i mean you know like zach has shared earlier you know this is fletcher is essentially being birthed out of the ashes and what's so awesome about it oh is not only are we multi-denominational or ecumenical, as you may hear it used interchangeably, but we understand the importance and the relevance of hearing from our sisters and brothers and people of various denominations and uh, Christian experience, right? Because I think many of us have been birthed and oriented in one particular lane that, again, going back to that fear, there's a fear that I cannot go outside of my lane. But it's so awesome when you can step outside of your lane and interact with your Catholic brothers and sisters, your AME. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's love. And so being able to do that at Fletcher is awesome on top of having that very practical, real world, real life experience right there in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Being able, as I, you know, as Zach has shared, having Zach as an instructor, right? Having Reverend Zach Lambert, the founder and pastor of Restore Austin, being able to not only bring his story to the classroom, but then be able to get very practical tips on, hey, this is what it looks like to church plant. This is the good, the not so good, the great days, the not so good days. But then also let me show you what it looks like in the bigger context of Christianity. Let me show you where we fit. You know what I mean? And so being able to say that Fletcher is going to be able to provide, you know, instructors like Reverend Zach and many, many others who are just experts and just doing their thing in the field of theology. It's just exciting, and I'm just excited to be part of that work. One of the things that's interesting to me, as like you share about it, is I think um, I think of some sem seminaries that are very bound uh, denominationally or mm -hmm. theologically, and that you're saying like we're going to create a lot of space for you to, have to bump up against uh, people who think differently, so that the goal is not. And tell me if I'm off on this, but that the goal is not that you walk out being able to just mimic what we tell you to believe, but that you walk out with a more robust uh, Christian thought life and engagement and even formation life because you are having to rub shoulders with uh, people that are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. Like, So like that seems super unique and different. Yeah. And then th another one that I like, I definitely I've experienced, well, 
like being schooled in the evangelical mega church, like you were, Zach, we did a lot of like, um, there's a lot of like internal promotion and internal like schooling that happens in those churches. And so some of that's been really good at like saying like, oh, there are people in our church that are called to ministry that we want to move into these roles. And as a result of that, you have people that end up leading in theological ways without theological training. And so they understand the practical, they don't understand the theological. And then you end up with folks that are trying to come into ministry out of seminaries that never had actually engaged in church work, but like they can, they can tell you all about Bart and they can like, they can exegete Romans like nobody's business. Um, but they don't actually like know how to like engage in people's actual real life or like how to like get a group of people to rally behind a, a cause or a calling. And so, like, that seems really interesting to me also of, like, sort of, like, that merger of those two. I don't know, Zach, do you mind share a little bit? Like, what was drawing, what drew you to some of this work and being a professor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think this has probably been said by a number of people, but um, Jesse Fletcher, who the seminary is named after, um, who's, who's passed away now, uh, but was a, was a former professor um, at Logsdale, uh, he was kind of famous for saying that he wanted to teach um, students how to think, not what to think. And, uh, I think that's really what Fletcher is trying to do, um, by exposing to a number of different ways to think and process about things. Um, yeah, when I was in Dallas, uh, at the last church I worked at, my job was and I ran a, I built them and ran a residency program to kind of train people on what they didn't get in seminary. Um, and I saw the same problems that you just identified, Mike, and that we've all seen is that there are these kinds of two kinds of folks, a lot of times that are in ministry, people who have just been immersed in higher education with really little to no practical training or people that have only had practical training been raised up in the church, but really never had any kind of higher education. And I think what, what Fletcher is trying to do in this kind of, um, you know, increasingly post-Christian culture is to say, you know, the, the answer to, um, bad higher education is not no higher education. It's better higher education. Um, and, and just like us as church planters, right? The answer to the toxic churches is not no church. Um, the answer is healthy church. And so how do we actually create these new spaces? Uh, and like you said earlier, Mike, those things naturally critique the old. And so when Fletcher was first pitched to me, that was really how it was pitched. And that was what was engaging. And I will say, uh, without getting into a bunch of specifics, um, I was hesitant at first because you, these are easy words to say about any kind of institution. I had so much institutional pain, uh, you know, I touched on that a little bit earlier that it was hard to trust that, you know, this was actually going to be the way that it was, but I've watched Fletcher, um, uh, put their money where their mouth is numerous times, including losing out on donations because of a refusal to compromise on full inclusion of all people, um, including even on the board level. Um, and as they've done that, as I've watched them make those decisions really early on, um, at the time when we know as church players, that's the easiest to compromise when it's so early and you have nothing and you need all the help. Um, that's really when it's easy to compromise. And I've watched Fletcher in the leadership, um, you know, Candace included, uh, continue to say, no, this is who we are. This is who God has called us to be. And, uh, we are going to move forward with that regardless of the cost. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with people like that any day of the week. I love that. I love that. So, um, 
what kind of people would be looking at Fletcher? Like if folks are listening right now and they're like, uh, like that kind of theological education, that kind of practical experience sounds interesting. Like what kinds of folks do you think would fit into the work that you all are doing? Yeah. So we're, I mean, we say all the time, whether you are just now starting your ministry journey, whether you have been journeying for years on top of years, maybe your second career, maybe you have dealt with, uh, you know, as Zach shared, maybe you've dealt with some institutional hurt or mistrust. And we just want you to come and, you know, allow us an opportunity to journey with you to a place where you can discern where your call is. You can discern what are my next steps. Because you may come and take a class and say, you know what, I really enjoy doing mission work. Or, you know what, I this really affirmed who I am and what I'm doing wherever your mission field looks like. And so really, we want to help any and everybody who is willing to come and be open to just conversations. We're very relational as a board, as an institution. And so we just want to sit down and let's sit down and talk. Where do you see yourself today? Where do you see yourself years from now? And how can we fit into your story um, as we are, you know, developing our story as well? Love it. And Zach, you've got a class coming up. Are you teaching right now or is it coming up soon? Yeah, it's, it's, um, we're recording this in early September. So this starts in late September. Um, okay. and, uh, so yeah, we got to see more weeks to register. I'm, I'm teaching a class, um, called developing partnerships for community transformation. And it's in the certificate program, um, which I just actually stepped into to leading that, that whole certificate program and trying to build, um, it out to, to add more certificates. And like Candace said, the, the practical focus not just of this class, but of the entirety of the seminary um, is something that I think really can draw people to it. Uh, like, for instance, our class, uh, my class that I'm teaching this semester, the, the goal is to really help people um, connect with nonprofits and businesses in their community to build those partnerships so that you see larger community transformation. Um, and it's, it's incredibly practically focused. So we're starting out by trying to help people understand a more holistic version of the gospel, uh, right. That it's not just, uh, people walking down aisles or praying prayers or being baptized, but it's, it's shalom and flourishing for people all over the place inside and outside of your communities. And that's really what God desires. And so how do we step into being a part of that? And so at the end of the certificate class, you'll leave with an actual strategic plan geared toward your specific context, community, city, um, in order to develop those partnerships to see the, the community transformation. And so all of our certificate classes actually end with a capstone project. Um, and then the certificate's eight classes. So at the end, you'll have eight of these capstone projects that you'll be given in a portfolio with very practical, um, real-world application type things. Um, and again, the practical focus extends to the master's level work as well. I love that. I love that. Uh, so it's FletcherSeminary.org, yeah? Yep. Yes. F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R seminary.org. So they can find more info. Get to take a class with the Reverend Professor Zach Lambert. (laughs) Um, I might sign up for that because honestly, it sounds super fascinating. I would totally take a class to learn from you, Zach. Uh, So I would love, if it's all right to wrap up, like I would love to, um, both of you have every reason to have a heart that is hardened by the church and by others in the church. And yet like you keep putting yourself in a space to try and build something. So I would be curious to hear, and I'm thinking specifically about people who listen to this, who are in some sort of church leadership. Like 
how is it that you have kept your heart tender mm-hmm. and sort of open to the work that God is calling you to and towards still engaging in the church and not saying that that's what everybody's story needs to be. Um, but for you all, it seems to be right now. So I'd be curious, like how, how have you been able to maintain an openness and a tenderness towards that? Yeah. So I would say this is where my social work background comes in. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I teach as I was working with my clients, I would tell them, you know, the first, you know, in order for you to understand you have a problem, you have to first acknowledge you have a problem. And so if you are in this space of doing ministry and you realize that your heart is becoming hardened or you dealt with some, you know, some pains, you got to say, you know what, I'm hurt and be willing to deal with that. But then also keep the, at the forefront of your mind, who am I doing this for? Because I've been, and I'm pretty sure we can all attest this, I've been in a number of situations where I've been so hurt that I told God, I said, God, I don't know, I'm changing my membership to Bedside Baptist. <laughs> and I'm staying home, right? But God, in every one of those moments where I was just frustrated, right, and just tired, God said, but I called you to this work and I need you because there's a group, there's a population, there's somebody who is waiting to see you, to hear your voice. And if you stay at Bedside Baptist, that person, that institution will not hear what I need them to hear. Yes. I, I need you to be my, literally be my hands and feet. And so that has really kept me going, just realizing that what I'm called to do, it's bigger than me. And don't get me wrong, I get upset and I'm like, I'm not going, I'm not doing it, I'm done. <laughs> but every time I, after I have that moment, I dial it back and I said, you know what? I acknowledge my issue. I need to process it and keep working. And I have a therapist. So I put that everybody in you get you a good therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. Candace, I'm really grateful that you've done that work and that you're uh, continuing to engage. We need your voice. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo Candace on the therapist side. I also have a therapist. Um, that's super important. And, uh, but you know, I, I think I love the way you phrase that, Mike, what keeps your heart tender. Um, honestly, for me, it's, it's our people at Restore. Um, they keep my heart so tender. And, uh, the fact that on one side, I know because they've told me, you know, like I, I, I wouldn't be in the church if, if restored wasn't here. Um, and the fact that, um, they found this place, right. Where they can give and receive, where they can experience healthy community, all of that stuff that keeps me going, but only so long, right. There is a little bit of like, uh, this is, you know, it's hard. It's exhausting. And so I think what I've realized, especially over the last few years, is this truly is a community. I'm not just giving, I'm receiving as well. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, after the shooting in Uvalde a while back, um, I was having a hard time. I've got elementary school kids and um, actually I have a grandparent that's from Uvalde who lived across the street from the, this elementary school. And um, it was uh, just devastating, obviously, for all of us. Um, but it was it was really difficult for me. And I got up on Sunday and I I shared and grieved and lamented. And um, if you've ever watched me preach, I'm a fairly emotional guy and and cry maybe every other sermon, at least tear up a little bit. But this one's worse, you know. I was I was honestly having trouble getting through it. And um, at the end, I, I just offered as kind of the we did a closing song to go and stand on the side and, and pray with people if they were having a hard time. And I go over there and I, I kept my head down um, and the band starts to play the closing song and I look up 
And, you know, there are like 12 or 15 people lined up. And um, honestly, my first thought was like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. You know, like, I don't know if I have it in me. And like, like six of the first eight people that walked up in that line said, I need, I want to pray for you. How can I pray for you? Um, and they just like laid hands on me and let me just like rest on their shoulder and fry and, you know, prayed over me and prayed for strength and prayed for safety for my kids and um, for healing and value all of these things. Right? And I just, I, it was like, those were the, the arms and words of Jesus in that line, you know, just over and over and over again, as, as people came up and hugged me and prayed over me. And so that kind of stuff keeps my heart tender to realize I'm not some savior. I'm not some elevated pastor that is just like dispensing, as you say, like spiritual goods and services on everybody. And um, you know, handed out blessings, right? Like I'm a member of this community, um, that gives and receives love and support and health because we're all empowered by the same spirit to do that. Um, so yeah, that keeps my heart really tender, especially in the tough moments. Hmm. Well, dang you two, this is good. It's really good stuff. Um, well, thanks for making time to be here today. Friends, check out Fletcher Seminary. Uh, you will not be disappointed by getting to engage here with Zach and with Candice and with the other great team members there. I've gotten to meet uh, some other folks there, and they're all wonderful. So check out Fletcher Seminary and Candice and Zach. Thanks so much for making some time today. It was genuinely so good for me to talk to you both. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for creating this space, man.